This is the Three Shots Down podcast with Jerry Soupy, Andy Rodriguez, and Kate Dore. Welcome to the second episode of Three Shots Down. How's everybody doing today? I am doing wonderful, thank you. Um, like I said, I've been iced in the last week, and I'm getting out now, so I feel so much better. Looking to record, man. This is going to be a fun episode. Cool. Yeah, I'm doing okay. It's been a frigid shithole in Michigan, but what are you yeah. going to do? <laughs> right. Yeah, we're we're expecting rain here until Thursday here in um, Houston. Yeah. And um, speaking of it being uh, shitty uh, <laughs> weather all across the United States this um, during this week, uh, we are going to talk today about Sid Barrett. The um, leader of Pink, the early leader of Pink Floyd, the formator, creator of Pink Floyd, if you will. In this episode, we are going to title it Black Holes in the Sky, which was taken from the great song of Shine On You Crazy Diamond, which was um, which led off um, Wish You Were Here, which Jerry will talk about that later on during his shot. Mm-hmm. Um. So let's just kick it off. I mean, let's just start off and go. Um, his name was actually Roger. Yes. Keith Barrett was born on January the sixth, nineteen forty-six. His birthday just passed a couple of weeks ago in Cambridge, England. Um, at a very young age, Roger. Will change his name later on in life when he's a teenager. He will change it to Sid, and he will keep that name until the early 70s, where he would resort back to being named Roger. Um, he won a poetry contest when he was in junior high. He was at the age of 15, where um, he won a poetry contest. Now, if y'all will. Um, go back to the movie The Wall when um, the lead character is in grammar school and he gets in trouble for writing poetry. If y'all remember, the master um, took his poem and he was writing um, the poem and what it was was the lyrics to Money, if y'all remember. Yes, rubbish. Mm-hmm. Absolute rubbish. Yeah, <laughs> what a yeah. good bad guy. <laughs> oh, yeah. Very so sinister. Yeah. Yeah. What a teacher. I mean, and you can kind of see that kind of teacher or that kind of um, schooling back in England in the early 40s, mid early 50s, if you will, you know, post war and um, the way that England was ravished by war at the end of World War Two. So so you can kind of see that kind of headmaster. Well, it's kind of like my experience in Catholic Church. I went through the same thing. I got hit in the hand so many times by the nuns there. So I, I, I can sympathize, I guess, a little bit. <laughs> yeah, it's wild. My mom was a teacher in the 70s, and you could paddle kids. They gave you an actual big wood paddle that had, like, speed holes. Yeah. She still has it, and you could paddle the kids. Oh, well, I was paddled a lot in the 90s. No, wait, maybe late 80s. And what 87, 88 when I was in junior high, because I would get late for for classes because I was out trying to talk to girls, so I would be uh. <laughs> Yeah, right. And um, 
And instead of me staying for detention, where my parents would find out, I would just skip detention. Holy crap, yeah. And they they called me into the office, and they didn't have to call your parents about it at all. And they would say, hey, um, do you want, you know, two days of detention, or do you want two licks? Well, if I stay for detention, my parents would find out. And if I got the whoopings, they wouldn't. You're going to get a double whooping when you get home. Yeah, so I might as well just get it done. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, I would go home after school. How was school? That was great. Yeah, it was wonderful. So, corporal punishment back there in the 80s here in America. But if you can kind of figure out how schooling was back there in England. Um, also, on the schoolyard, which was pretty um, neat about Sid, he was a great comedian. And he would do impressions of movie stars or comedians at the time. And one comedian that he would um, fancy, his name was Sid James. Yeah. Ah, uh, yeah. Um, I was trying story. to figure out where that namesake came yeah. from, the nickname. Yeah, exactly. It came from a great comedian back in the 40s named Sid James. And he would do his personation so well that one was best friend started calling him Sid. So the name stuck, and he used it. But um, instead of spelling it S-I-D, like the comedian did, he spelled it S-Y-D. And I would carry that as his um, name, as his professional name, as he got into music. Um, he would go go with that name until the 1970s when he then he went back to Roger. Um, Sid met Roger Waters in primary school, and in middle school or high school, he then met David Gilmore at that time. So he had been friends with Roger and David for a very long time. Um, Gilmore was a lifelong friend, kind of a big brother type um, to Barrett. And um, both of the, all three of these guys, Gilmore, um, Waters, and Barrett, would be the creative leaders of Pink Floyd, each of them at different times in the career and life of Pink Floyd. And uh, each led Pink Floyd the way that they thought that they should lead it. Um, as, as, you, as you will see, or when you listen to Pink Floyd, you, you'll see the shift in um, the leadership from going from Sid to Roger to David. And we will see the changes and listen to the changes in their music and lyrics and everything that went on with that. Um, Sid, um, as he got older, he would fl he flourished in the Cambridge scene. Um, Cambridge had a big music scene that was going on. And before he made it to London, he was in local bands throughout Cambridge. Back then, um, they would have like, like makeshift stages and warehouses. And pretty much he would just jump on stage and just play with whatever whatever um, music bandmates were up there. You would just go up there and create music. And Sid always would jump in, but also make himself the leader of, what of, of whatever musicians were up on the stage there. Um, yeah, on some of the documentaries, I'm sorry, on some of the documentaries, they talk about how uh, wild those parties were, those uh, jam sessions. Um, yeah. <laughs> a lot of... Uh, Fun times, if you know what I mean, back yeah. then and that time. So, 
and, and a lot of a lot of experimental times, and not just with drugs or with alcohol or what, but also a lot of experimenting on stage with lighting and the way that they would use projectors and try to mimic what was on the projector screen to the music that was coming out, which Pink Floyd themselves would would master later on in their career. Psychedelia, man. Yeah, yeah, and, and and the psychedelia came up from just from just trial and error and just just feeling things out. Um, after some personal and name changes, the band finally settled down with Barrett, um, Mason, Waters, and Wright. Um, the lineup in 1965 under the name of Pink Floyd, as suggested by Sid. And what's funny is that they took two American bluesmen, mm. Pete Anderson and Floyd Council, and yep. took those names to make Pink Floyd. But also, um, I was goofing around. There is a alternative pop band that is named Anderson Council. After who? Oh, well, they took the other names. Oh, gotcha. I see. Duh. My bad. <laughs> yeah, they took the names of what was left over of Pink Floyd. Right. And Anderson Council. First first brain cramp of the night there. Sorry. I'm not. It's all right. And um, I and um, I found it a little amusing that they would use those names. And and I, and I listened to it. It was kind of like um, dance, alternative pop music. It wasn't really my forte, but, you know, it's pretty cool. I found it interesting that they would pull those names out yeah and the bands would play american blues and r&b which led to the birth of a uk psychedelic movement that its performance was groundbreaking and unique to the point that he would put mirrors on on his fender guitar and the spotlights would hit the mirrors and make this light shine back into the crowd. Yeah. Or shine at different different points throughout the um throughout the I don't want to call it arena because it wasn't an arena. It was just like a little warehouse. Yeah, I mean they were playing in warehouses, uh, circus tents, I mean all all kinds of places back then. Right, yeah, exactly. And um he would put these plastic to give it a silver colored body. And mount 15 mirrors throughout the body of it for that shine. Um, all, and also, um, he made it kind of famous, which it was called the mirror guitar back then. It was, it was an amazing type of um, psychedelic light. Um, it was like a psychedelic, psychedelic light show when the, when the light would hit the guitar mirrors. And um, Sid used the guitar as a visual to shower silver on the people. Um, they were known as the first house band at the UFO Club. Um, the, the UFO Club was one of those clubs that was mentioned a lot, which, you know, if you can picture the cavern that was in Liverpool, that's what the UFO Club was like. Mm. On Halloween of 1966, the band went to the studio and recorded the very first version of Interstellar Overdrive. Um, it was used as a soundtrack for an experimental movie 
I never knew that. Did you guys know that? Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. It mm-hmm. was used for a movie. And that was a band song, but it was mostly done by Sid Barrett. Um, the rest of the band just kind of followed along and played with the rhythm or of whatever rhythm that Sid would um, would allow there to be, which there was, which there wasn't. And you can really listen to Interstellar Overdrive in 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 your mind. He's the one that's pushing it forward. And the band is just playing along with what Sid was doing. Yeah, that was pretty. That was pretty much Sid Barrett in a nutshell. Even on the solo albums, when I get to him, it was the same thing there with. Uh, his, his band members and you know Gilmore and Wright trying to you know follow him whatever he was doing because he never knew you know he was never had nothing what do you call it you know in concrete it was always on the spot you know what I mean and uh, in, in uh, doing it on the fly exactly yeah and I've got a question for y'all do y'all think that he, that Sid Barrett is big or um, popular because of his music or more of the myth. A little of column A, a little of column B. <laughs> I think he influences so many people for like the different style and and being so progressive at the time. You know, he's really influentially employs like so many effects that weren't really being used yet until like psychedelic was really getting going. Right. Um definitely the the legend that follows and that especially like just going into obscurity mm-hmm. such a strange thing so i think a lot of people are attracted to him because of that you know right because of the myth or or yeah the mystique, or just the mystique not of, necessarily not necessarily a myth but more of a mystery you know what i mean um it's like he just disappeared yeah yeah, until um, I got really into, like, music and music history stuff, I mean, I thought he was dead. Like, I didn't yeah. know, being a teenager and getting into Pink Floyd and just knowing the early albums and, like, Sid's gone, and in my mind, he was dead. And then to find out, like, oh, no, he's alive and he dies in, like, 2006. Like, what? Right, yeah. Wait a minute. Yeah, I mean. You know? I mean, Sid really never left Pink Floyd, you know what I mean? No, he, especially he the, the influence. Music. Yeah. yeah, and then especially all their writing, like so many things in in later albums are about him, mm-hmm. and yep. you know they they keep him alive even though he was alive. Like they keep him alive throughout the whole time, throughout the band, and yeah. throughout so many other albums and songs. Yeah, yeah, that was one of the great things about Roger Waters. Man, he's a very good lyricist and a really good storyteller. So he kind of told those stories really well. You know what I mean? So yeah. uh, really did. And um, it makes you it makes you wonder because you would always hear, oh well, he became a hermit or a recluse. He really didn't. And just that he just stayed out of the music limelight. And yeah, I mean, forgot about it. Yeah, I mean, he would just uh, just he would still try to do something musically for a little while before he finally packed it in. But uh, it wasn't like he just stopped all of a sudden. Right. Yeah. And, and he was always out and about, just that he was kind of on, he was unrecognizable that people would just pass by him and he would just right. go about his way. I mean, yeah. Uh, but, well, it's uh, weird later, like you see these pictures of him where he like shows up to the studio for something and he looks like a totally different person. Like he shaved his hair and his eyebrows and he gained a ton of weight and. 
all of the walls. You know, it's so strange. Yeah, yeah it's like, so it's like strange. Yep. When he's like a different person. Yeah. Exactly. Um, in 1967, Pink Floyd would sign to EMI Records, releasing singles Arnold Lane and C. Emily Play. Both songs were by Sid. Um, shortly after these releases, the band began recording their debut album, Piper at the Gates of Dawn, which everybody knows so famously. Um, they were right next door to the Beatles. Yep. All the were doing Sgt. Pepper's Long Charge Club. Mm-hmm. Yeah, can you imagine John Lennon and Paul McCartney peeping in to see what's going on? You're, you're recording like, your what, debut album. What are these guys up to? Yeah. <laughs> but by April of 1967, Pink Floyd was the big band at the 14-hour Technicolor Dream Festival at Alexandria Palace. And they were adored by music fans that attended the festival in mid-May. So you can already see Pink Floyd was was the it band at the time. Mm-hmm. But um, the album didn't do too well, Piper's at the Gates of Dawn. Uh, when it was released, um, Sid started to have some some uh, issues, some um, psychedelic, well, not psychedelic issues, but kind of, help me out here, Kate, like, um, like um in the like psychological issues yeah i think this is that um, point where you just start seeing different mental health things popping up yeah, and, and you know jerry and i were kind of talking about this and i think he probably in my mind reading this and thinking about this he's probably schizophrenic yes and definitely a never diagnosed b never treated c family completely denies any mental health issues so you can imagine being young and being in a band and that kind of pressure coming on and then drugs trying to tour yeah. and then getting into psychedelic drugs. Yeah. Like that really, there's a bunch of stuff about the band talking about it after where it's such a turning point in, in how they were dealing with him and how they were trying to proceed as a band, you know? Yeah, Exactly. And, and, you know, some people take psychedelic drugs, and some people just can't handle it. Yeah, um, some people just really freak out on them. And, and yeah. it's funny now that, you know, now they're using psychedelics as all kinds of therapy for PTSD yeah. and depression yeah. and all these different things where you're seeing people treated with mushrooms or LSD or yep. ketamine therapy and all this stuff's popping off now. And it's like, Ugh, if there was a way to help him then and control situations and, you know, deal with any other underlying mental health stuff that was going on, which, you know, I think a lot of these guys obviously have probably pretty heavy duty anxiety and depression issues. Yeah. But but the way people describe different things that Barrett would do and like his erratic behavior points me to thinking that he probably was in like a touch schizophrenia a lot of times schizophrenia doesn't hit people until they're in their 30s which is funny some people kind of hit it earlier but just knowing a couple schizophrenics in my life that I have a couple friends that are schizophrenic and and understanding these things that happen to them and I'm like I can definitely see the parallels that I would guess that that's what was going on with him yeah I mean um (laughs) <laughs> there were there were moments on their tour for that that uh, mm-hmm. uh Barrett would just wander around stage or just sit down and just stare the whole entire yeah. show. 
Um, yeah, and he's like disassociating, and it's like, where did you go? Like, where are you in your mind? And, I know it's terrible. Yeah, yeah. But um, at this 14-hour Technicolor Dream Festival, um, the band started to um, experiment with their stage show with sound effects of a 360-degree sound system mm-hmm. and videos that they would play with to make the music go with the video. If y'all can imagine that in 1967, a 360-degree sound system. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and especially a lot of people in the audience are experimenting with psychedelic drugs. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> so, See Emily Play was a big hit for the band. They were asked to play on popular TV shows like Top of the Pops. Well, popular TV shows in, 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 in London, everybody played those shows. Top of the Pops especially, yes. Yeah. Um, they played it three times, but it was the third time around, the third time that they were on Top of the Pops, that Sid started to show mental issues. Mm-hmm. And that's when um, they started to see a change was their third time on top of the pops. If you can imagine the band, you know, cause they were young too, you know, they, you know, I'm pretty sure they weren't aware of psychedelic mental health issues. Mm-hmm. The, um, Roger recalled it. Um, Roger says this, it actually happened very fast with Sid. I have to say right away, the time of see Emily play, he got very weird, very quickly. Um, the band had to write letters of apologies for performances of Sid, and some shows were just canceled. Um, they didn't know what was going to be happening. Um, the band were made to take a break. Um, they were being known as flakes by the press and the fans. Yeah. They had to cancel shows. They sold tickets, but they just didn't know what Sid would be on stage. And we were just talking about how Sometimes he would just be on the stage and just space out or just walk off the stage mid-song. And this and 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 he wasn't just a player in the band, he was the leader at the time. Exactly. And um, um around this time the debut album was released. And at this time the, the um Piper at the Gates of Dawn was was given negative reviews. By fans and by and by the press, mainly because of Sid, um, he was considered to be one of the most. But now this is considered one one of the most psychedelic albums of all time. But at the time, they would get negative press because of Sid Barrett. Um, Sid started to become difficult at this time. Um, two singles were recorded but not released because of negative writing. And too far off popular music scene. Scream Thy Last Scream, Old Woman with a Casket was one of the songs. And Vegetable Man, which we've heard of Vegetable Man. Yeah. Um, they would play these songs live and on the radio, but they were unreleased because of the subject matter. It was just so far out there. It wasn't going to connect with, um, uh, with the pop or even the psychedelic movement at that time. Because if, if you can think of the Beatles at the time where, um, where also in 67, they were doing a, ma- a magical mystery tour and 
and doing a little bit of psychedelic, but it made sense um, with with what what Sid Barrett was doing. It was just so far off that they weren't getting any kind of um, movement either on the radio or in popularities. Uh, early Pink Floyd worked harder than other bands in their live performances because of their sound equipment and of microphone feedback. The vocals were low. Sid would just mumble. And the band was so loud at that time with, with heavy rock distortion. And it, it just wasn't gathering um, what they were doing a year earlier. And that, was, and that had to do with Sid's state of mind at the time. Um, just being so different. Um, Sid's behavior became worse. They were added to a tour with Jimi Hendrix, and and um, the band decided to add another guitarist. And would come in his old buddy from middle school, David Gilmore. Um, he was added to be a be a touring guitar player while Sid did studio work. But that idea failed terribly for the band. Uh, while doing studio work, Sid had new songs for band rehearsals. But he would change the songs in the middle of the take. Yeah. And the band just didn't know which way to go and what to do. And, you know, you can imagine studio time is already expensive. And pretty expensive for a young band that's trying to move forward but they're wasting time they're wasting money by um uh, with uh, with the change of um heart by sid <clears throat> this was his last studio work with pink floyd which is going to be the anniversary is three days away on the 25th of january of 1968 was his last um studio work with the band um, after a few more shows um, they only played a few shows with all five members with Gilmore and mm -hmm. Waters and Mason and um, and um, Wright and of course Sid they, they only played a handful of shows um, on a on the way to a show which is pretty sad. Um, Waters, Mason, Wright, and Gilmore, the band just chose not to pick up Sid on, on, on the way to a show. That seemed to be a very unceremonious departure from Sid Barrett because then they would have to rediscover what the whole band is going to be now because they're letting go and they chose to to get away from the creative force of the band. Yeah, and, and, and when, once they got rid of Sid, uh, uh, Peter Jenner, their manager, left with Sid. I guess he thought that Sid was, you know, the, the, the talent of the band at the time. Right. right. So that's my shot about Sid Barrett. That's my first shot. And he and I ended it with the band just not picking him up. Yeah. There was no discussion. No reasoning why they just they just didn't go back for him. Roger said to keep driving. He said it. Yeah. I saw him last year, and he says it in concert. He says like we just kept driving, and it was his call. He's the one who said it, and um, 
it's so strange to have that where you just completely blow off someone that's obviously in a mental health crisis. Like, I know they are trying to be a working band and they need money in that, but it, to leave your bandmate. Yeah, but they and, couldn't know that it was mental issues, though. Yeah, I don't know. It's sad that, like, and we don't know. You know, back then they just didn't really know stuff about yeah. mental health. Oh, of course not. And <laughs> oh, this guy's a plague. This guy didn't mm-hmm. want to. Mm-hmm. He's just on too many drugs or whatever. Uh, we got to leave. Yeah, let's, you know, uh, he's become, I mean, they're canceling shows. Uh, yeah. They're, they're canceling studio time. Yeah. And it's I've not- been there with friends where it's like, you know, your friend becomes a liability when you go somewhere. You just stop inviting them to things. Stop taking them because he's an ass. You do. Ever. It's sad, but that I definitely in my life alone I've had to do that. And I've never been in a band with anyone, but you don't yeah, want to deal with somebody. As harsh as that sounded and what they did to him, like I understand it, and they still, you know, consider it a brother. It's not like they just tossed him aside. You know what I mean? They always mm-hmm. tried to, you know, keep in touch with them. Like I said, you know, they always made sure he got his money, this and that. So right, and we said that yeah. Gilmore, especially like all the way until. Sid died. He received royalties from Pink Floyd because Gilmore made sure he got his money. Yeah, it's like all these, um, all these uh, Pink Floyd greatest hits uh, compilations. Gilmore made sure that they had a Sid Barrett song on there too. Mm-hmm. To give him royalties, make sure that he got the writing credit and got and got got the royalties for that. You know. I, I'm not the biggest Pete Floyd fan of the Sid Barrett era. Um, I'm sure that that's not a surprise. I've said that before, especially when we did our Pink Floyd ranking on the on the Black Spinner Circle podcast, and I think I had Piper towards the bottom. Um, so, um, so that's no surprise to me. I believe mm-hmm. in my in my heart um, when Gilmore came in. You know, I was corrected the other day, actually, by um, by by Jerry and by our good friend Al Horta when I said that um, David Gilmore is the sound of Pink Floyd. But, you know, Jerry and Al said, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Waters is the writer of it all. But, you know, it's it's, it's that guitar sound. It's that. No, Jerry, I've always liked Gilmore better. <laughs> Gilmore's yeah. my favorite. Yeah, I think Al liked what like like the. Roger a little better, but I love mm-hmm. David. Yeah, David to me is Pink Floyd. Um, yeah, the one that carries the banner for as long as he could. I don't think there's gonna be another Pink Floyd release mm-hmm. again. No. Um, so no, it seems like Roger Waters is too hard to work with. Yeah. So Jerry, uh, what happened after after Sid? Well, was, he yeah he was, did do he. I'm sorry. He did do a little work on their next album, um, Softer Full of Secrets. But he only did like one song on that, Jug Band Blues, I believe. And he played on a couple of the live tracks on the uh, that album as well. But uh, after leaving Pink Floyd, he was pretty much uh, out of the out of the public eye for about a year, I think. And in 1969, at the behest of VMI, he embarked on a brief solo career, releasing two albums in 1970 called The Madcap Laughs and Barrick. Both of them, I guess, they released in 1970. And a really good single called Octopus. I really enjoy that song. If you haven't heard it, please do. Mm-hmm. It's really, it's a cool, catchy tune, man. 
But some songs like Terrapin, Maisie, and the Bob Dylan Blues really reflected, you know, Barrett's early interest in the blues. Um, but his first album, The Mad Cat Laughs, The Mad Cat Laughs, um, Gilmore had this to say about it. It says, the sessions were pretty torturous and very rushed. We had very little time, particularly with the madcap left. Sid was very difficult. We got that very frustrated feeling. And we're like, look, it's your fucking career, mate. Why don't you get your finger out and do something? The guy was in trouble and uh, was a close friend for many years before then. So it really was the least we could do for him is stick around and help him out. Yeah. Um, but like I said, uh, Peter Jenner, their manager, uh, after were, well, actually, yeah, my dumped Pink Floyd after that and uh, Peter Jenner and uh, what with uh, Sid Barrett because I guess he thought he was the talent you know of the band I guess at the time I guess he pretty much was Um, so yeah I mean he decided to return to music um, and they couldn't really find somebody that wanted to produce it you know he went through like two or three um, different type of producer but they finally got somebody um, uh, Norman Smith I think is the one that produced it. And they uh, had session works from Humble Pie's drummer, Jerry Shirley, and Willie Wilson, um, the drummer of Gilmore's old band, Joker's Wild, which I actually have not heard anything from them. I don't know if Joker's Wild even has. Yeah, I wonder if you could look it up. That's funny. I didn't think about that. Yeah, Gilmore played bass and um, and all that. But the communication with Sid was very, very difficult at that time, man. Like I said, it was a case of following him. You know, not playing with them. They were singing and then playing so, so they were always a note behind. So it was kind of difficult for them to, you know, to, to record these albums with them. Um, at one point, um, this is actually kind of sad parts. Um, when the album was released, um, Sid was still, rather than trying to do live shows or anything like that, he would try to follow Pink Floyd along, you know, around. You know what I mean? Um, oh, really? There, as they were recording the Yomaguma album, he would try to sneak into the studio or, you know, see if they, see if they can get in and nobody would let him in. I don't know if the band knew that at the time or not. I don't know. Uh, but that was actually kind of sad about that. Um, uh, let's see what else here. I mean, so uh, still want, is it like he still wanted to be in the band or not? Yeah. Kind of weird because yeah. Umaguma, they did some. Of course, Umaguma, half of it is live and half of it is studio. Yeah. yeah. But that part's the live part. Yeah, it was just, it was just real sad because, um, you know, one of his friends, I, I don't know who Jay Ryan Eves is, said that um, he would see him on the beach wearing dirty clothes and, you know, in a bag full of money, which is kind of yeah. odd. Right? Yeah. He was so, and me and Kate mentioned this before, he has something called uh, synesthesia, which, um, messes with your senses is like if you smell something you'll 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 cue it as something you're hearing you know what i mean it, it, yeah it, it, you taste uh, colors and smell sounds and, exactly. and all your senses cross over like the pathways in your brain are kind of oh. short-circuiting so i'm thinking man combined with that you know and you know schizophrenia which i'm pretty sure that he had in the drug use man it's mm-hmm. like wow i mean that you know what that guy was going through at the time it's just man mm-hmm. unreal um, well, it's sad to be kicked out of your own band after like a year and a half. Like April of '68 when he's kicked out, and you know they're blaming obviously speculation of mental illness and drug use, and 
he's trying to do his solo career 69 and then going into 70 when he releases a couple albums but it's like him not pulling like he doesn't really pull out of the music industry until 72 so there's like four years where he's just kind of floating around and lost you know yeah and you know and uh the record company about the album it's like the producer saying you know they felt they did not like it they were very upset and they were like comparing it to dirty laundry in public and very unnecessary and unkind Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. um gilmore said perhaps we were trying to show what sid was really like but perhaps we were trying to punish him at the same time which is kind of a i'm I don't know what he means by punishing them about that. I don't, you know, maybe for leaving the band or I don't, I don't, I don't know about that. Yeah. Um, but, uh, Gilmore did well, a lot on those albums when Barry just walked away from the projects. Right. And Gilmore was left to, to finish it. And not yeah. just Gilmore. I mean, other Pink Floyd members also helped. So it's not like they abandoned him. Um, yeah. Cause that's, what's funny with the two albums that it's like, a few other members from Floyd are helping him complete yeah. his albums in 70. Yeah. And not to mention that uh, they both had, I guess they call them flats in England, apartments, I guess. There. Yeah. And they yeah. were right next to each other. They could actually see David Gilmore and Sid Barrett can still look in each other's windows and see each other. So that's kind of, you know, I don't know how awkward that would have been or, or how that was uh, <laughs> um, done. But um, like I said, hey, mate, you didn't pick me up that day. Yeah, right. <laughs> But Roger was more positive about the albums. He, he, he always refers, he still does to this day, he said it was a genius. And I guess depending on how you look at it, maybe, maybe not, I don't know. And Barrett said about it, it's quite nice, but I'd be very surprised if it did anything if I were to drop dead. I don't think it would stand as my last statement. Mm. So, I mean, he, he knew. But the second album, Barrett, which I really enjoy this album, there's some good stuff on it, man. Um, Second album, Barrett was recorded more sporadically. The sessions taking place between February and July 1970. The album, of course, was produced by Gilmore and featured Gilmore on bass guitar, Richard Wright on keyboard, and Humble Pie drummer Jerry Shirley. The first two songs attempted were for Barrett to play and or sing to an existing backing track. However, Gilmore thought they were losing the Barrettness. Um, one track called Rats, which is a really weird tune, and I love it. It was originally recorded with Barrett on his own that would later be overdubbed by other musicians, despite... The Changing Temple, Shirley said to Barrett's playing, he would never play the same tune twice, which we talked about that before. Sometimes Sid couldn't play anything that made sense. Other times, what he played was absolute magic. So it's like, you know, feast or famine with him, I guess, at this time, in his, in a, you know, recording with them. At times, Barrett, who experienced, you know, we talked about the, uh, the, the synesthesia, which is still mind-blowing to me when I found that out, how it affects your senses. Um... Perhaps he would say stuff like this. Perhaps we could make the middle darker and maybe the end of a bit middle afternoonish. At the moment, mm-hmm. it's too it's too windy and icy. It's like, wow. I mean, is that genius or insanity? You know what I mean? I don't mm-hmm. know. I think he was riding the rail between the two. Yeah. Um, and these sessions were happening on this album. I think Floyd had just begun to work on Adam Hart Muller. On various occasions, Barrett went to spy on the band again and they rec- as they recorded their album. Uh, Richard Wright, who helped uh, sit on this album, said that uh, doing Sid's record was interesting but extremely difficult. Dave and Roger did the first one, and Dave and myself did the second one. But by then, it was just trying to help Sid any way we could, mm-hmm. rather than worrying about getting the best guitar sound. You can forget about that. It was just going into the studio and trying to get him to sing. Um, so that's pretty much... Uh, 
uh, a little detail about his two solo career albums. I own both of them. I don't know if you guys have you guys ever heard them. Yeah, well, I listen to both. They're uh, they're interesting. Different. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I mean, and then uh, I guess he was pretty much out of the public eye for a while after that, mm-hmm. until um, 1975, when one of the most uh, talked about things in music history occurred. Um, Barrett visited the members of Pink Floyd in 75 during the recording sessions for their ninth album, Wish You Were Here. He attended the Abbey Road session unannounced and watched the band working on the final mix of Shine On You Crazy Diamond, a song about him. Can you imagine the irony in that? Uh, (laughs) Barrett, then 29, was overweight and had shaved off all of his hair, including his eyebrows, and his former bandmates did not initially recognize him. Barrett spent part of the session brushing his teeth. Waters asked him what he thought of the song to which Barrett responded, that sounds a bit old. He was reported to have briefly attended the reception for Gilmore's wedding to Ginger and immediately followed these sessions, but Gilmore said he had no recollection of this. But during the sessions, um, like the band members were unaware who that was, and he would just sit there and stare with these, the stare that he has, which is mentioned in the title of this episode, Black Holes in the Sky, which mm-hmm. is also a lyric in the song and he would just and you can tell there's pictures of him in that era you can just tell he has a stare and it's like it's just like burns through you when you look at it it's like um just You're looking through your soul yeah or just and then, to nowhere but after that um it was pretty much uh out of the public for a while um i know he moved back to cambridge he stayed with his mother in, in, in her basement i believe and just went to the pub every now and then Mm-hmm. Um, but other than that, um, it, I, he really didn't do too many live performances. I think he did like one or two of the solo stuff, but you know, it was just so you know anarchy to do shows with this guy. So um, that didn't really work out. But uh, you know, there's so many great documentaries on you know the the the, the wish you were here sessions. Um, I'm sure a lot of people that are familiar with Pink Floyd have heard him before, and there's just some of the great, you know, stories in rock and roll, in my opinion, <laughs> and also just totally, you know, totally, you know, in, I, I hate to use the word insane, but just totally like, wow, I mean, mm-hmm. it's hard to say, but, uh, you know, those are the only two albums that, uh, he has a third album called Opal, which is pretty much just a bunch of unreleased stuff, and, you know, like, pieces of music kind of like pink floyd's um endless river album just a bunch of bits and pieces so i, I really want to talk about that one too much and he has a lot of uh you know there's he has a few um greatest hits album and compilation i think he actually has a he has a live album out somewhere too really uh, wow i didn't I, know he had a live I, album. yeah i was reading into that and um pretty much that's you know the 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 last you know the public's heard of sid um you know, until, you know, I guess he made, you know, of course, you know, his death was very sad at the time. I'm Kate's going to get into that mm-hmm. story next. But uh, that's what I got with the solo stuff. And um, we'll shoot it now to Kate on her part. So shooting off from that, I mean, this goes into how you were saying he's going into reclusivity that like his final interview 
for the public is 1971, and he retires from the music industry completely in 72. Then he, like, there's some funny stuff about he went to live in London for a few weeks in 82, and then he walked the 50 miles from London back to Cambridge to go back to his mother's house. What? So, and that's, he, like, stayed in Cambridge at the mother's house. I guess they had, like, a... I don't know if it's a servant's quarters or something, but it was like a separate little house that he was staying in, it sounds like. Um, but it's just wild to think of somebody doing this where it's he's kind of following around Floyd and then he has his own solo stuff. And the last public interview is 71. But going into the next few decades, I mean, he's alive until 2006 and like I said, until I got really into music and that, I had no idea that he even was alive. That's how reclusive right. he was. Yeah. Um, none of the members are really talking to him. And this, there's a couple things that people had said that he didn't like being reminded about his musical career. He didn't want to have any contact with anyone else that was in Floyd. Um, his sister was like the biggest part of reaching the outside world and she would always talk about him being a gardener and a painter and he was focusing a lot of his time on those different things and when he's going into this reclusive phase his health is declining he's having stomach ulcers he becomes a type 2 diabetic right um and that's i'm wondering if some of that is going on in that like how jerry said that like 75 where he shows up and there's pictures of him and his hair is all shaved off and his eyebrows are shaved off and he's really heavy and they said he had like a big obsession with candy that he was eating candy all the time yeah, not really I read eating that. any yeah. food like <laughs> he's eating candy and not yeah. eating actual food or anything um I mean, I just have so much that I read about this that's so interesting. And then, um, like, the documentaries that we mentioned, that there's a few different ones. And there was one story that I read that he went to his sister's house in November of 2001 to watch this, like, BBC omnibus documentary that was made about him. And the one thing that he says about it, that it was a bit noisy, he enjoyed seeing Mike Leonard again, and he calls him his teacher, and then he enjoyed hearing see Emily play. But other than that, there's not any mention of anything. Um, in 2002, it was his first appearance in 71 that he autographed 320 copies of a book called Psychedelic Renegades, which was by the photographer uh, Mick Rock and it contained a number of photos of Barrett. But even that, he would just sign things that he just autographed different stuff saying Barrett. He didn't put Sid, he didn't put Roger. Um, he would just write Barrett. You know, we uh, talked about, um, about how the band didn't help him. I just don't understand why his family didn't help him out more. Just well, let him live there. yeah. Well, and that's reading into this where his sister completely denies any mental illness. Yeah. Like a bunch of the different stuff that I was reading up on this and trying uh-huh. to do my research that his family just totally denies that any any issues. That's the style at the time. And that even continues into now because a couple of my friends that I said that they're schizophrenic right. and have different issues, their families completely 
deny any issues. They act like they don't need medication or they convince them not to have medication. And then they have some kind of psychotic episode and the family's just like, well, we just call the police on them. (laughs) And it sounds like that's the kind of thing that was going on with this, which is, which is so devastating that you could be going through some kind of thing and your family is no help whatsoever. They just let you be like shacked up in a house by yourself all the time. In the back room where the door closed. And uh, yeah. And I mean, it's not the 1950s or the 60s anymore. Crying out loud, it's in 2020, 2024 already. Yeah. Yeah. Crazy. And all that time, there was people coming, like fans are coming to Cambridge to see him. And the family is appealing the public to stop coming. And that was just a bunch of things that I was reading about different fans coming out to Cambridge to try and see him or whatever. And, like, the family's pushing everyone away, so he has no connection to that. And um, go ahead, Andy. Oh, I'm sorry. I don't mean to. Um, no, don't. Don't be sorry. I need to get very aggravating at this point because it was like his family did more harm to him. Huh. And when. Maybe seeing fans or talking to fans, maybe that could have helped somehow, some way with the outside people who fans, who, especially rock fans, we care about our heroes. We do. Yeah, but him being a recluse like he was, I don't know. Eventually he could handle that. Yeah, I I I don't know. I think that might have been too much input of having people, like, especially strangers, I bet, would be hard. And then... Kind of. You know, there's um, there's this stuff about his sister's question later in different interviews and things, asking if if he had Asperger's syndrome and um, Rosemary Breen, that's the sister's name, but she just kind of flakes it off and has this thing that she's quoted as saying we're all in the spectrum, and then saying that Barrett didn't suffer from mental illness nor had he re- ever received treatment. And it's like he was in treatment. He was in a facility for a he while. Was, yes. And yes, she just completely denies this, that he's he was in a private home for lost souls in Greenwood, Essex. <laughs> like, yeah. What? what? <laughs> yeah. How sad is that? Like what year was home that? for what? lost souls. That was in the early 70s. I think originally he was. Yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah. For like a couple, for like a few months, I think it had something to do with uh, him breaking up with his girlfriend and a lot of stuff like that. He just lost yeah. his mind for a little bit. Yeah, there. and then you know, then there's things of him where he's pursuing psychiatry. He's with a um, psychiatrist at Fulburn Psychiatric Hospital in in Cambridge, but then his sister says that he doesn't. He it was deemed that he did not need medication or therapy. It was not considered appropriate um years later saying yeah he did yeah <laughs> and then there's things about him where he'll talk and there's like a couple quotes of him where he's like roger may have been a bit selfish or rather um self-absorbed but when he called when people called him a recluse they were only projecting their own disappointment he knew what they wanted but he wasn't willing to give it to them that's what her quote is about him well, that could be partially true as well, I think. Um, sometimes pressure like that. Was, people, yeah, yeah, and I'm thinking it was more that idea of, like, 
how we talked about it a little bit that he probably couldn't deal with it, that he couldn't yeah. deal with people expecting things of him and he wasn't capable of doing anything that, you know, people wanted him to do with them yeah. or if he was asked to do these different projects or who, you know, who knows? I don't know. This is all, it's really hard to peel these layers apart. He's the onion and there's a lot of layers and there's a lot of speculation and there's a lot of different people at play in this where it's like he's not being reached so he can't really say much and depending on the mindset he was in or, or the state of his mental health who knows what he was capable of and then to have the family speaking on his behalf or having his bandmates speak on his behalf yeah i mean like I said, I, I, I kind of agree and disagree with how the family, I think they were trying to protect him a certain yeah. way. Yeah. But, uh, you know, in medical, in medicine was so different, you know, just well, 20, like, 30 imagine, years ago. Yeah. Imagine the psychiatric facilities where they're just doing shock treatment or right. lobotomies and, and torturing people and, and using them as human experiments. They're guinea pigs. I mean, it's yep. just horrific. If you could imagine, I always think of like clock or um, not clockwork orange, but one flew over the cuckoo's nest. Yes. One flew over the cuckoo's nest is like the most horrific and, and best example of, of actual scenarios that were at play in psychiatric facilities. And even now it's not much improved. Like a couple of my friends who've been in psych wards, just the horrors of what is going on in those places. And if you're not placed in a really, really good rich person one, and you could pretend to be healthy, mentally pretend, because you do not want to go back to a place like that. That's what's sad. And that still continues today. It is horrific. Yes. And, you know, this, I'm um, reading into this more of like, um, in 1996, they're inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. And Barrett is inducted with Pink Floyd. He doesn't attend the ceremony, but then the mother is still alive at this time, and she says that she doesn't want anyone contacting him because anything reminding him of the bands, putting him in a depressed state for weeks. Wow. Yeah, that, yeah. I didn't know. I mean, I know so he you was. Can imagine, like, and that probably was. I mean, that, I can't imagine how he said, like, Roger Waters just like, yeah, just keep going. They just keep driving. They're supposed to pick him up for a gig, and just getting kind of cut out. It doesn't sound like it was a real cut and dry cut out. It was like, Drawn they're out. just kind of leaving him, leaving him behind but, and not you know, discussing it. And not. <laughs> yeah, it's just amazing how, uh, like I said before, how uh, we, I said that even though he only did one, one album and one song, how he was with that band all the way up, pretty much their whole career. Mm-hmm. I mean, well, he's such an influential person in, in the sound and in the lyrics and in, I mean, the wall. Come on, like pink in the wall is Sid Barrett. Yeah, Barrett. the shaving, the shaving of the eyebrows. And, yeah. Um, there were yeah. moments. There were moments where um, his roommate would say, "I'm going to go out and get a beer or some cigarettes," and uh, and he'd be gone for hours and hours, and he'd have a burning cigarette in his hand. Exactly. And that's like, he would just, oh, they didn't Where's have the any beer? beer, or they didn't have, you know, like the guy's been gone at the pub for hours and hours, yeah. and and Sid sitting there with a burned cigarette burned down to his fingertips. That was actually showcased in the wall too during the song mm-hmm. "Nobody Home" while he was sitting there, you know, with uh, the cigarette 
Ash, you know, and that, and that was a yeah. cool scene in the movie. Oh, man, what an incredible, like, such a disturbing film in so many ways, but what an incredible film, and especially combining animation with live action. Oh, yes. And the way they pulled it off, like, me being a, you know, person who draws and paints and seeing all the different things that they did with animation at the time, because what does that come out in 82 or so? I'm, I'm 81 to... or 82, yes. Yeah, I mean, just what an incredible film. And what a bizarre, like, all the stuff about the war. Mm. Holy yeah. crap. <laughs> that yeah. is such a wild, wild ride when you get on that. And you you got to buckle up to watch that one. I probably watched that way too young. I probably watched that one. Yeah. Out of when I was I mean, probably 14. <laughs> I mean, just the opening of that movie where, you know, you, you see the maid with the vacuum and, you know, she opens up the door and it's like, dun, dun, you know, yeah. flesh. Just yeah. incredible how they compare the, yeah. my the, parents crowd rush, never... the crowd rushing into military. Yeah, my parents movies. never censored anything. Like, I got to watch way too many things that were just so messed up when I was a kid. And to think about this, I'm like, yeah, I was probably way too young at maybe 14 or so, to 13, 14 watch the wall <laughs> um you know we talk about the wall and um and wish and wish you were here how they always talked about Sid throughout their career but also kind of makes you think that you know the band profited off of Sid's misfortunes well i guess that depends on how you look at it man yeah. i don't know if it's yeah I mean, if they gave, you know, they gave Sid royalties, like I said, I don't know. I mean, it's a story yeah. to tell. I mean, it's, it's an interesting sad. topic to tell about, you know? Yeah, it's sad he's wetting his beak, but you wonder how much of it, like, obviously he's not having any involvement with the band, so they're kind of just doing things. And so using his... Yeah, his identity yeah, is a like huge the part. You know, there's One so of their biggest albums ever. And, and the so film... But it added to it, I think. I mean, if he were just yeah. to drop drop out, you know, at that point, they will never talk about him again yeah. for the rest yeah, of the Yeah, and we career. had that where we mentioned earlier. I mean, they're kind of keeping him alive. Exactly. Keeping him alive in the band by doing these things. Um, I mean, it's just such an interesting thing. And there's so many, um, like, incarnations of Pink Floyd where it's like Roger Waters kind of Pink Floyd and David Gilmore Pink Floyd. And the early two, you know, that's Sid. And to see a band change so much with so many different moving pieces going around. And each of them doing their own solo stuff. I mean, all of them have pretty incredible solo things now, even, that you can see them on tour. Because Nick Mason's got Saucer Full of Secrets. And, he dil you know, Gilmore. And, like I said, I saw Roger Waters last year. And... It's pretty incredible how even though they're not together, they all still are kind of keeping this alive and moving. Exactly. Oh, man, Roger Waters, man. That guy still knows how to put on a great show. I mean, Yeah, the show is brilliant. incredible. He's not the nicest human, I think, oh. in my <laughs> opinion. But the show was incredible. Yeah. Um, and some of his solo stuff he does, like there's a band that I really love that's like kind of a chick band, Lucius. And he saw them somewhere and he does a couple things with them they have a really good cover it's him and lucius the two girls from it the two lead singers and they do a great cover of goodnight irene um i can't think of the other song they did together but he really took the shine to them really talented band 
It's two broads harmonizing lead vocals. They play a bunch of different percussion. And then there's three guys, like a guitarist, bassist, and drummer. Um, did they um, Mother with him? What'd you say? Um, did they redo Mother with him? Yep, that's what I couldn't think of. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yep. yeah. Really talented, really, in, really interesting band. Um, yeah. Uh, I had a couple quotes. I, I like these. I think these are always interesting. So I have a quote from Gilmore um, in 2006. So this must be right after Sid's death. Right. But it's. Gilmore saying, in my opinion, his nervous breakdown would have happened anyway. It was a deep-rooted thing. But I'll say the psychedelic experience might well have acted as a catalyst. Still, I just don't think that he could deal with the vision of success and all the things that went with it. I think that's pretty, you know, pretty prescient in thinking of of all these things going on with him and obviously like our last episode we really discussed heavy into the pressure of fame and touring and yeah you know some people can't do that and i i see a lot of parallels with sid with brian wilson from the beach boys mm-hmm. that brian wilson probably had you know some br- pretty bad depression anxiety schizophrenia starts experimenting in psychedelic drugs he can't tour but he's still one of the big writers because he's obviously like the genius. I mean, just absolutely brilliant musician and songwriter. And then they have somebody else going out on tour and doing all these other things. And it, um, did you guys see Love and Mercy? Yes, no, I did. I think that I really encapsulates a very good like background of Brian Wilson. And he, he ended up getting involved with a really horrific therapist that was abusing him and taking advantage of him and giving him drugs that he shouldn't have had um, and up to the point where he extorting him yeah like really horrendous well, kept away from his brothers from the rest of the band yeah yeah i mean just really scary like um who is that paul giamani plays yeah. the therapist and oh my gosh is he so sinister in that yeah. And um, John Cusick, who plays Brian Wilson. But that's nope. reading all this Pink Floyd stuff and reading all this Sid stuff, especially. I'm like, holy crap. Like, I never it didn't dawn on me the the parallels that were going on. And and it's a really close same timeline, too. Yeah. Yeah. Which is really interesting. Yeah. Which is really true. And if you really think about the help that 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 one was trying to get and one that didn't you know brian was married during that time and he had yes. yeah he had brothers that were deep rooted mm-hmm. so he had help if he wanted it mm-hmm. i think he would have helped, been helped a lot more if it wasn't for the therapist quote unquote that, Ugh, yeah it's that, so um, scary i kept them from carl mm-hmm. and, Everyone else that was trying to help him, and um, you know, I believe that um, his wife tried to help him the most, but then she just couldn't do it anymore. You know, it just became, and then really, you know, mm-hmm. about Brian Wilson, which would be a great, great episode, actually. Yeah, that's a really good one that we could do. There's so much there. He really triumphed. Mm-hmm. 
this. And I think it was to help with a, a family and people that that, mm-hmm. that loved them and um, other musicians that helped That's them. if you imagine, like, Sid finding somebody, like, getting out of this bad situation. It's like, yeah. what could have helped him? Because they, like, Floyd, um, there's a thing in 74 that they were saying that, like, Pink Floyd as a group um, approached a psychiatrist named Artie Lang. And, not Artie, R. There's some funny stories about Artie Lang, but uh, poor Artie, that's another person. Oh, man. So many problems. It's really sad. But um, R.D. Lang, and they call it the Barrett problem, and they played him a tape of Sid Barrett, and Lang says that Barrett is incurable, just from a tape, never talking to him. Never seeing him. This is 1974, so this is six years after Floyd splits with him. And they're going to go and play a tape. Yeah. And um, there's a couple other things where they interview different friends and people who would go to his flat a lot. And there's one of these guys that um, is talking about being in the flat and these, like, groupies and hangers-on and different people who come to his place. Um, one of them says that I went to Barrett's flat to see Harry and there was this terrible noise. It sounded like heating pipe shaking. He says, what's up? And the guy sort of giggles and said, that's Sid having a bad trip. We put him in the linen cupboard. Oh, shit. Harrison responded to this claim by stating, I do not remember locking Sid up in a cupboard. It sounds to me like pure fantasy, like Jonathan Meads was on dope himself. But it's like, I believe that. I believe someone would do that. If you don't know how to deal with somebody and they're having a bad trip, they just lock them up in a cupboard. Like, what? Just what? To get out of your way. Yeah. I mean, that's, I, mean yeah. I mean, I don't know. What else back at that time could you do? I don't know. I mean. Yeah. It's... Well, and then there's these other things saying, um, this other thing I read. So it was. Barrett's flatmates, who also had started taking LSD, thought of Barrett as a genius or a deity, and they were spiking his morning coffee every day without his knowledge, leaving him on a never-ending trip. He was later rescued from the flat by friends and moved elsewhere, but this erratic behavior continued. So this is like that timeline of like probably 68, I'm guessing, and um, that uh, Sorgerson... On one occasion, I had to put him, which is Barrett, off his girlfriend, Lindsay, because he was beating her over the head with a mandolin. On occasion, Barrett threw a woman called Gilly across the room because she refused to go to Gilmar's house. So there's all these things of him, like, freaking out and being abusive, and then they would just lock him in the closet because they didn't know how to control him. But they were dosing him. They're the ones. Exactly. quote-unquote friends are the ones who are dosing him every day. Wow. Yeah, some really good friends there. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, just uh, I want to kind of get out of that stuff, obviously, because that's like so messed up and, and horrendous. But all these things of um, him obviously not getting the kind of treatment that he needed, but just leaving this on influence of all these musicians that you know, McCartney, Townsend, I mean, all the way to, like, Blur. They have, like, Mark Bolin always contributes his influence to him. Um, 
Tangerine Dream, Genesis, Flaming Lips, new stuff like Animal Collective, but Bowie, like Paige, Brian Eno, Sex Pistols, The Damned. I mean, these are all people who were really influenced by him, and they were all pursuing to work with him, too. So these are, you know, during the 70s and then later on before his death, the newer bands, obviously, but they're all different bands trying to get him to come play with them on different things. Um, Bowie covers C. Emily play in 73, um, the pinups album. Um, XTC, uh, like... Even, even like Andy Partridge, that's one that made me laugh. Andy Partridge, and um, oh, there's just so many people that are so influenced by him. And I feel like anyone that's like modern day, kind of touching on psychedelica, obviously, is influenced. Like the two first Floyd albums are so bizarre, which I like them. That's a little too weird for some people when they say they like psychedelic, but um. I mean, like, Clash, the Sex Pistols, the, like, there's so many different bands. I can't even name all of them, but there's just, it's amazing how this worked out. And then you're going into punk music, mm-hmm. and punk music is really going into, like, nihilism and trying to push off the the psychedelica thing, you know, and that's obviously, like, we're we're splitting a lot of time here, but. I feel like early psychedelic stuff has that vibe to it that it's like not the mainstream. They're trying to stray away and that definitely influences a ton of punk music and just getting weird and and getting noisy and yeah, yeah, you know, um, but that, and and how we were mentioning, you know, it's like Dark Side of the Moon kind of plays on this. Wish You Were Here, The Wall. Like, there's a bunch of different things that you can tell are lyrics talking about him. Yeah. And, and, and throughout their whole career. And um, going further into, like, like, I'm supposed to cover his death, which I really haven't talked about much. But July 7th. 2006 he's only 60 years old he dies from pancreatic cancer which is horrendous obviously like anybody if you've ever known anybody who's died from that it is absolutely horrific um one of the worst one of the worst cancers and and none of the bandmates were around none of the bandmates talked to him his death's not reported for a whole other week it's like not even till july 12th of 2006 that anything's reported on his death um, he was at home in Cambridge when that happened. Um, I'm kind of lost. I don't know. I kind of derailed. But but these different um, shows that they had these tribute concerts. So a Madcap's Last Laugh, and that's at the Barbican Center in London in on May 10th, 2007. So another bandmates: Sir Robin Hitchcock, Captain Sensible, Damon Albarn, Chrissy Hind. Uh, Kevin Ayers, these are all people who came and played. And then Gilmore, Wright, and Mason performed Bike, which I've talked about it on many a podcast before. Bike is like one of my favorite weird Pink Floyd songs ever. Um, you know what's weirder? You know what's weirder? Play it backwards. <laughs> play it backwards. Yeah, yeah right. <laughs> 
Um, they play Arnold Lane, and then Waters did a solo of, of Flickering Flame. So they do a few different songs. Like, these guys showed up, but they weren't there at all when, when all this other stuff is going on. But they showed up at this tribute concert. Um, there's a couple different things. We mentioned a couple. There was a Sid Barrett documentary specifically, and then there was one... Um, have you got it yet? The story of Sid Barrett, which I didn't catch. This came out in 2003, and I was trying to find it for this show specifically. I can't find it streaming anywhere, so I'm hoping I could do like a torrent or something. But I think it was just at a film festival, and then it just kind of disappears. So it might pop off. Sometimes these documentaries that are kind of obscure will come out a couple years later. But there's a bunch of interviews. There's Roger Waters, Mason, Gilmore, his sister, the manager, Peter Jenners, and Andrew King. Like, these people all come out for interviews for this. Um, It's directed by Roddy Bogawa and Storm Thorgensen, which everybody knows Storm. That's a pretty famous name. Um, Narrated by Jason Isaacs. So I got to find this. I don't know. I just wanted to shout this out because it looks really cool. There's some preview clips that you can see on YouTube, but you can't find the whole film on there. Um, we were talking about his guitars. So these, one of his guitars sold for like 20,000 pounds. And then they sold a bunch of his other possessions in November 2006 at Sheffin's Auction House in Cambridge. They raised like 120,000 pounds for charity by selling some of his stuff. It included paintings, scrapbooks, everyday items that, um, he decorated, small paperback copy, of Cambridge 2005 has written an inscription that says RB06 inside the front cover. So Roger Barrett 06. So it's like the last thing that he signed. Um, but with all that, when we were talking about all these different um, royalties and things, when he died, he left his siblings 1.7 million pounds. Woohoo! <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah, all that. Yeah, he had four sibling, uh, four siblings, left 1.7 million pounds, and this was all royalties acquired from Pink Floyd compilations and live recordings featuring Barrett's songs. You uh, them better. What'd you say? You would have thought they were they would have treated them better. Yeah, this sister that like denies all his. And that's the only sister who's had any connection because I don't see when I was doing all this research, like I read so much stuff about this and the only name ever mentioned is his sister. Yeah. But he has three other siblings and they're like MIA, but they get all this money. And um, and there's another series of events that they did that was called the City Wakes. And that was in 2008 in Cambridge, and it was just another celebration of his life, art, and music. Um, there's so many. That, I mean, I want to go back and watch this this show, because I bet you you could find live of this other show that I was talking about, The Madcap's Last Laugh. Yeah. At 2007 show. Um there's people, we talked about the Beatles a little bit earlier, right. and uh, one of their producers, Norman Smith, he compares him to John Lennon in his memoir. He said, Sid Barrett could write like John. I've said it before. He wasn't quite as good as John, and I am talking about a Sid in top form with CMLE play. 
but he would have developed definitely in time if he would have gotten better. Yeah, another another uh, interesting story is, um, it's not, I think one of the last words he said in public was, I guess a journal, some mm-hmm. journalist tried to ambush him for an interview mm-hmm. and um, go something like, leave me alone, I gotta go get some coleslaw. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> that was supposedly the last word Sid said in public. So. <laughs> Oh, Sid, yeah. was, Sid was still Sid to the very end. It yeah. <laughs> oh, man. Page, this one. Jimmy Page never saw Barrett play with Floyd, but he was a fan of the early um, early group's music. In an interview, he says, Sid Barrett writing with early Pink Floyd was inspirational. Nothing sounded like Barrett before Pink Floyd's first album. Yeah. Uh, I mean, there's just so many of these. I don't know. I don't want to go on reading a bunch of I mean, quotes, you, but but it's just interesting. To, like sorry. all these guys, these these incredible musicians that um, quoted or they're talking about him with like Hendrix and him both have this futuristic vision, and it's just sad to think of somebody that's like so brilliant being lost, you know. I mean, right. the Piper of the Gates of Dawn, I think, is an amazing yeah. album. I, if yeah. people getting into Pink Floyd would just put, get mm-hmm. Dark Side of the Moon and Wish You're Here out of your head. It's not going to sound mm-hmm. like that. No, mm-hmm. sit, sit down and really listen to the songs on that album. They're incredible, I think. I mean, yeah. lyrics, the musicianship. I mean, I Especially if you have a good, a good system or a damn good set of headphones where you really hear yes. someone who knew how to control stereo sound that you can really get into, like, I always say that soundscape, I always say that, but that if you sit down and close your eyes and listen on an excellent set of headphones or an amazing sound system and put on a damn good copy of, like, actual vinyl, how it's meant to be played, and listen to it, and it is so incredible, and that's, like, the Beatles or anyone else who started screwing around with with understanding channels and understanding multi-tracking and all these different things that you were capable of, like within your limits at the time, too. We have to like I always want to specify if you can imagine what they were doing is revolutionary at the time and you're bound by certain limits of what you could do with the electronics that you had. So imagine him now, if he could be screwing around with stuff now, right. and the amount of of technology that is available, <laughs> and, oh, man, yeah, I can't even imagine the stuff that he would come out with now, and, and, and you know, I always go back on my word in, in these two, because if he was treated, and if he was medicated, and if he was handled how they handle people now... Yeah. Would have any of this come out? And that's that selfish part of me and loving music like that or loving art like Van Gogh or someone someone you knew who is obviously having really hard mental health problems. Would they yeah. have been as creative and would they have been as prolific and incredible if they were in this timeline? Because this timeline would have had them medicated and had all kinds of psychiatric care. And would it have been the same or not? Because that genius, genius is so close to madness. Very close. I mean, you're walking a thin line. You are on a thin 
line and that I always think about that in that I don't want to be selfish. I wish we could have helped him. But in that selfish aspect of thinking like everything that happens is happening for a reason in a timeline and you don't want to disturb it. And there's just all these things about him that are so incredible that I know, like, especially knowing people in my my own personal life that are schizophrenics where it dulls them so much. The, the medication dulls them, which is unfortunate because without it, they obviously cannot exist a normal life or lead a safe life for them. Right. But. I mean, it's just such a funny thing to think about. And that's probably a real <laughs> psychedelic thought process. No, it but, is. I mean, but, what you're, what you're saying I, is 100% right. I mean, Diving into that and, and, oh, man, there's so many of these amazingly brilliant musicians that you wonder what it would be like right now. Um, oh, yeah, I don't I know. Think, I don't yeah, have I think, to say. <laughs> I think maybe Kirk Cobain felt that way about fame and fortune. Oh, well, I think. I mean, somebody, you know, and he really tried to reel against it because he knew how much it was hurting him and his life. He he felt that weight, and he would talk about it even before they were super famous. He kind of tried to really rally against it, and that's that last unplugged. That's like one of his very very last live. Yeah, right. Um, he comes off. He does. I've talked about this on a bunch of other things, but one of the most incredible unplugs MTV ever did, obviously. And he plays that Where Did You Sleep Last Night, that In the Pines, the Lead Belly uh-huh. cover, and that last guttural verse. And he comes off, and the crowd is going absolutely wild crazy. And all the big wigs, all the suits are behind in the state, back of the stage. And they're like, we'll give you 200000 to go back out and play another song. We'll give you this. We'll give you 500000 He says, no, 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 no. I'm not going to top that. I'm not doing it. It's not worth it. And and you wonder how many of these guys, that's that's like how we were saying earlier. <laughs> Can you imagine? And like they're pushing him and he's like, how am I going to top that? And he says no, and that's I don't, like, I don't, yeah, I don't mean to be the greedy, snobby <laughs> person here, but five hundred thousand dollars, put my ass back on I that stage. I'm exaggerating, but I'm pretty sure the two hundred thousand was was quoted. I'm pretty sure. I might be exaggerating five, right. but just me talking still, here. But put me on that the, stage. The suits, the suits are just so, and he always pushed back. He always pushed back, and that unfortunately, like I don't want to get into crazy conspiracy theories, but I don't know that he really killed himself, but obviously the pressures of all the bullshit that comes along with fame were too much or whatever. Um, but that's what I wonder about with Sid. Like I said, we, we've talked about this earlier in the episode that it's all these things of, of going on tour and having these deadlines and having to be here and, and in this place and, we're driving to such and such and we're going to do a show at this. And it's like, all right, well, you know, all these things I find out with his friends, so-called friends are dosing him every day. And he's probably a schizophrenic, which a bunch of different people mention this. And it's like, what was going on in his head? Plus the pressures of trying to tour, plus the pressures of, oh, you are signed to open for Jimi Hendrix. What? 
Yep. How do you not cave? And they're little kids. Like, I know in your 20s, you're technically an adult, but you and your mental capacity and, and growth, you are still a child. You are not an adult until you're like in your 30s, in my mind. And and to think about all these pressures that are put on him and he's dealing with all these different mental health issues and getting dosed by his friends, allegedly, and who knows what else is happening to him. Yeah, and the synesthesia, like, could you imagine playing a concert and you have synesthesia, smells, sounds, yeah. colors, light, like anything, any input that your senses can take is being overloaded and cross-circuited in your brain 24-7. How could you deal with that? Plus being on drugs, like, drugs do that to people as it is, let alone if you actually have synesthesia, I can't even imagine what that would do short-circuiting you. Right. Yeah. I don't know. That's that's all I got to say. I, I talked a long time on this, but this was just such an interesting case and such an interesting, so many, so many moving pieces going around. And then just to, you fade into obscurity and then he's sick and he's still doing art. I mean, he's gardening and he's painting and he's still doing all these creative processes, which I think is so therapeutic. That's anyone who has any kind of mental health issue. Anyone listening, I know I'm I'm the after school special always, but anyone <laughs> with a mental health issue needs a hobby. They need a creative outlet. You need even just stress or anxiety. You need a creative outlet. And it's so therapeutic to have any kind of thing. If you paint, you garden, you whatever you're doing, I don't care what it is, but you need to find something that doesn't let your mind race. Yeah. It pulls you out of that constant cycle. I have bad anxiety and something that can pull you out of that cycle of your head always spinning is just so helpful in calming that and, and taking away, like especially a schizophrenic. Could you imagine... All the voices and everything are real. All the thoughts, all the paranoia, it is real to them. That's what's so spooky about schizophrenia. Like, that is completely happening. It may only be in their head. You can't see it. You can't hear it. But that is 100% real. And you can see them physically reacting to it, too. Like, laughing or yelling. It really is. I've had a couple friends go through breaks, like actual psychotic schizophrenic breaks. And... And to know someone and talk to someone that, you, that you're talking to a different person or you're talking to someone that has a whole narrative that is happening in their head and you don't see it, but you have to listen to them and understand and, and agree with it, but agree with it in a delicate way that you're not influencing it or influencing any of their behavior. It is very difficult and it's very, very sad that brain chemicals could do this to a human it is yeah i mean as a huge pink floyd fan i'll always acknowledge you know his contributions to the band and uh um, yeah well and his influence and, uh, throughout time of the whole band all the albums yeah i mean now, i wonder i wonder you mentioned all those people that you said you know were influenced i wonder if he knew that you know what i mean i don't know i know i uh i you guys know how I'm such an empathetic person and to think like you wish that any one of these people that reached out to him to try to work with him, I'm hoping he was in a mind state that he could know how 
how many people loved him and how many people their whole career you know someone who who picks up a guitar because sid barrett you know yeah yeah he was so influential he was pretty incredible i mean what a character what a the mystique we've talked about that this this mystique and this this uh, jenny sequa i don't know i don't know what to say but this this person and this character Yeah, I mean, it's, uh, I don't know of any other bands that actually had an experience like this where a member that's, was kicked out and yeah. they're still technically, technically they're out of the band, but they're that's like talked the about biggest all thing the time. I, the biggest thing I can think of and so many parallels with Brian Wilson. Yeah. I mean, it's just strange and especially the timeline being the same and so many things that happen in their lives that parallel each other. It's really interesting. But uh, like I said, uh, listen to the Madcap laughs and Barrett. I mean, there are some really weird stuff on it, but in between yeah. that weird stuff, there's an, there's really is some good tunes on those two albums. So yeah, I suggest I check if out you, that. yeah, give them yeah, a listen sure and um, you know, uh, Piper of the Gates of Dawn. I don't know how much stay people put in the Rolling Stone, but it was actually I think it was rated uh, pretty high in their top 500 albums. I'm trying 378, I think, out of their top yeah. 500 albums. Yeah, it Which depends actually, on what, what year you look at, but I always go by that 2012 because I always listen to that, the 500 podcast that I've talked about before, but the 500 is great if you guys want to listen to another music podcast. It's right. Josh Adam Myers is a stand-up comedian that hosts it. Um, his friend, who is another stand-up, was killed in a car accident. A drunk driver hit them and killed his friend, and he's dedicated this podcast to his best friend, and he's going through the 2012 list of the top 500 and he's up to 300 something he's well over halfway but it was like this is going to be nine years of podcasting that he's doing to honor his friend but some of those are incredible because he gets people from the music industry he gets other comedians he gets um you know photographers from all this and filmographers people who did album art it, it's really cool it's a really good show Awesome. All right, Andy, man, this is a great yeah. topic, great pick, yeah. man, that it you uh, Andy. came up with. And like I said, man, I, I, I enjoy, you know, talking about Pink Floyd because they're one of my favorite bands. And, yeah. Um, you know, it just, it was really, like I said, really nice to talk about this. And I learned a few things, too. Yeah. Um, yeah, and, yeah, we've all heard the Pink Floyd story, but I thought that would be a good idea to delve a little bit more into Sid Barrett. Um, into into the beginning of Pink Floyd, what he did after Pink Floyd, and how he lived out of the limelight. Yeah, I believe we touched on all that. Yeah. Um, thank you guys for doing so much great work on this. Yeah, thanks guys. This this okay. research topic was so interesting. I really, you know me, I'm. Yeah. I go hard, I go deep dive, and this was so interesting to find out so much more about him and trying to understand who he was. And I hope we yeah. honored him. I, I know we talked a lot about the bad stuff, but I hope we yeah. honored him in talking about all the good stuff and how much he's influenced so many other artists. Yeah. But the bad stuff happened, and we can't say, you cannot not talk about Sid Barrett without talking about the bad things that happened to him. Yeah. Around him, just ignored 
or made things worse for him. So I hope that um, the listeners out there learned quite a bit more about Sid Barrett because we really don't know that much, just just um, the early stuff about Pink Floyd. So I'm glad that we were able to touch on everything about his life. And and I think that um, we will learn a lot about him. So um, that was a great job, guys. That that um, That's what I envisioned Three Shots Down to be like. And um, mm-hmm. we are really doing a fantastic job of, of going into the depth of these musicians. Yes, thank you very much for the people that actually listened to our first, the Brad Dup episode. We're getting some yeah. uh, positive feedback on that one. I appreciate that. Um, yeah. What we're doing is kind of maybe in a gloomy aspect of the, of the music industry, but uh, I have a fit, you know some of these people need to be remembered, you know, and that, mm-hmm. that they're and that they're human beings as well. So mm-hmm. you know, how, the last time you say their name is when they truly die. Yep, yeah. I agree. And and I know that these two episodes we're talking about some grim, not so happy situations that these rock stars go through but we also need to remember that everyday people go through these situations as well yes that's true so um, yeah yeah you know me i like to shine a little light on on any kind of health issues mental health issues especially and that's something that with this that you know there's plenty of resources for everyone to reach out to if you're having a hard time or you're having anything going on or if you know someone, if you need help with someone and you could see signs of these things happening with someone that you know. Yeah. Thank yeah. you. All right. All right, Andy. Yeah. yeah. We will have some more episodes coming up. Um, it yep. will be Kate's topic next time. And then yep. we'll start again with um, Jerry, me, and Caden. Just go round and round. So. Yep. Um, thank you guys, and I hope that y'all enjoy this ride that we are going to be giving y'all. So buckle up, and here we go with three shots down. Yeah. Yep. Looking That's forward to a, a good, a good, uh, you know, long time doing this show with you guys. Yeah. Yeah. All right. All right. All right. I love you guys. I appreciate y'all. All right. You guys take care. All right. Have a good night. Good night.